Let me ask you a question. Can a Christian ever struggle with doubt? Right? Can a Christian, can a true believer ever wrestle with unbelief? More so, have you wrestled with doubts, questions about faith, questions about life, questions about God? Questions like, is all this stuff real? Right? All this stuff we talk about, proclaim about, read about, study, sing, and preach, is all this stuff real? Right? Is it true? And whether or not objectively you come to decide whether it's real or true, subjectively, is it worth it? Right? Does all of this make any difference at all? You likely know, and I certainly know, lots of people that carry on life fine, and they don't believe any of this stuff. Sometimes more than fine. And so questions begin to plague you, questions that sometimes you're afraid to admit you have, or questions sometimes you're ashamed to admit that you have. Because after all, right, the really spiritual people, they don't have any questions, right? They never doubt, they're never rattled, they're never shaken. They're never moved, they just always believe. Well, that's why I'm very glad, and I'm hoping that you will be very glad that Psalm 73 is in your Bible. Because in Psalm 73, you find a believer, right? A genuine believer, but he is deeply rattled to his core, right? Deeply shaken. Psalm 73 is written by this guy named Asaph, right? He was a worship leader of God's people. Basically, he was a Charles of the Old Testament, right? And Psalm 73 is written by this guy who knows all the right answers up here, right? Nothing wrong with his theology. Perfect doctrine. He's got every I dotted, every T crossed. Everything about God, he knows right. But he's having a hard time believing it in here. A guy who knows all the right answers, yet is sincerely doubting with questions, right? He's plagued with questions. Here's a guy who's far from super spiritual, Right? A guy you would like, a guy you could relate to, a guy who goes through a crisis of faith where he's almost on the verge of walking away from the whole thing. And in this psalm, he's inviting you on a journey to walk with him from faith to doubt and back to faith again. Psalm 73 is wonderful in that respect, refreshingly, almost strikingly, especially if you're in a church culture, alarmingly honest. And because it's so honest, it's incredibly relevant to us all. Psalm 73 is also called a wisdom psalm. And now you need to hear this. In the Bible, wisdom is not a word for the really smart people. My mouth gets dry. In the Bible, wisdom is contrasted with folly, right? With foolishness. And fools are those who what? Those who reject God and reject his ways. So then the contrast is the wise are those who embrace God and embrace his ways. And the scripture says wisdom can be had by all of us, right? Wisdom is available to all of us, to the simple, to the ones who don't have great understanding. Wisdom is perfect for us all. And Psalm 73 is a psalm of wisdom. And that's because Asaph, right, as he's taking you through this crisis of faith, 
is writing this as a public document for all of us to learn from, right? To learn from his experience and grow in wisdom so that we might embrace God as he does by the end of the psalm. And if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 73. That's where we're going to park ourselves for the rest of the night. Um, And this is how verse 1 begins. Verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, Asaph starts with this psalm with sort of a no-duh, right? Like a no-brainer sort of sentence. He comes to the psalm and he says, Truly God is good to Israel. It's sort of like if you had, if a Christian came into a church and said, God is good, many Christians would shout back, what? All the time, right? I paid Renee to say that. And that's because it's sort of a no-duh sentence, right? It's sort of a no-brainer type of phrase. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But here's the thing. Have you ever known something up here in your mind but had a really difficult time believing it in your heart? See, my dad would always tell me that the longest 16 inches is from your head to your heart, right? He knows that this is a no-brainer, and yet he's having this incredibly hard time with taking what's up here, a no-brainer, and believing it down here. If you ever said, I know the right answer, or, or if you ever said, I know what I'm supposed to believe, but I just can't believe it, I'm having a really hard time believing it, well, that's where Asaph is. And so he starts off with this no-brainer, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he doesn't make it to the second sentence, right? The second verse before showing us he's having a really hard time believing it. Because in the second verse he says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Before you get out of the second verse, you realize there's a disconnect between what he knows in his head and what he believes in his heart. Sure, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet nearly slipped. My steps nearly stumbled. And what he's saying here in that simple phrase is, listen, I almost fell away. Right? This thing came into my life and almost knocked me off my feet. My faith was coming undone. I almost fell apart. You see, this is not just poetry to say that I stumbled a bit. What he's saying here is that this little dalliance with unbelief that was going on in my heart almost knocked me out, right? I almost crumbled and walked away from the whole thing. Now hear that for a second, right? Especially if you're here and you're not particularly religious, right? Or if you don't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you're here and you go, I'd like to, but I could never be a Christian because I just can't believe all this stuff, right? I've got all these questions, and I know Christians aren't the one with any questions. They only have faith. They have no doubt. Look at this. Look at this. Who's the one that's doubting here, right? Here's a guy who has reached a spiritual level that you and I are never going to reach, right? He's a writer of Scripture. It doesn't matter how many good quiet times or devotionals you have. Nothing you ever write is going to be added to the Bible, right? That's Asaph. And this guy is saying, I almost walked away from the whole thing. You see, doubt inherently is not wicked. Right? Hear that again. Doubt inherently 
is not wicked. In fact, doubt can become a source of great furtherance in the faith. Right? One preacher uh, gave a great example, and if you know your Bibles, uh, and I said to you, if I asked you, who's the greatest doubter in the Bible? Many of us would come back with Thomas. Right? In fact, he has a nickname, right? and that's Doubting Thomas. Right? And Doubting Thomas is the one whom Jesus appeared from the dead right? and resurrected and showed up to his disciples, and all the disciples saw him. Right? And Thomas was out somewhere. And so Thomas comes back, and, tell, and they all tell him the good news, right? And Thomas goes, uh-uh, I ain't believing this, right? I ain't a sucker, right? Because which one of you would believe that someone came back from the dead, right? Which one of you sitting here would believe that someone came back from the dead? So he says, unless I touch his hands and touch his side, I'm not believing this. And Jesus shows up to him, and he doesn't rebuke him for his doubt, right? He doesn't scold him for his doubt. He doesn't reprimand him for his doubt. He doesn't cast him away for his doubt, right? He doesn't say, well, all right, I'll just deal with the ten of you now because Thomas doubted. No. See, he shows up, and when he does, Thomas in John chapter 20 says, he fell down on his face and said, my Lord and my God. Right? And commentators say that there is no confession of faith in all the Gospels that is as clear and powerful as that one. So put those two together, right? The most emphatic confession of faith came from the one we know to be, in the Bible, the greatest doubter of all. See, Asaph here is saying, I nearly fell away from the whole thing. Now, what is it that trips him, much so, trips him up so much to the point that he's almost abandoning his faith? If you look at verse 3, it tells us, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Hear that again. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here's what happened. Asaph started to look around, Right? He started to look around. And maybe he's, it's something that he's known all his life, but for some reason in this season of his life, it's all he can see everywhere he looks, right? It clouds his vision. He can't see anything else, and everything he sees is a bunch of people cutting corners, cutting throats, doing whatever it takes to get ahead, right? A bunch of self-serving, self-interested, self-promoting people who will do whatever it takes to get ahead, and here's the rub of it. They're getting ahead. It's working, right? And then he looks and he sees a bunch of people that's playing life by the book, right, who are trying to walk the straight and narrow, who are generous and considerate, careful, unselfish, and life is pummeling the snot out of them. And Asaph, he can't take it, right? He looks around and he sees the good people are doing terrible and the bad people are doing uh, good and it, begins, and it begins to produce this heart a great deal of doubt. Right? How am I going to trust a God who does bad to those who are good and good to those who are bad? A preacher named Tim Keller very astutely points out, one of the things that's amazing about Asaph is that he's honest about his doubts. Right? He's honest about his doubts. See, some of us, we have doubts, right? And you hold them up and you think, our doubts are somewhat pure and perfect. Right? 
as if we have just an intellectual problem with our doubt, right, with Christianity. And I want to say, none of us, right, none of our doubts are just intellectual problems. They are always buried in experience. And here, Asaph is honest enough to say, the question I have here with God is, and not an intellectual one, but it's about injustice. Why are the bad doing well and the good are not? And he's honest enough to say, this all came to surface when I was envying, right? This all came to surface because you know what? I wasn't getting the good stuff. And if I was getting the good stuff, I wouldn't have a question at all, right? See, Asaph said, this wouldn't have been no doubt. I would have been happy as a clam, but I'm the one who's not getting the good stuff, right? And he's honest enough to say that, that this all came into my heart because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And what's Asaph doing here, right? He's looking sideways. A friend of mine described envy that way, and it's a great way of uh, describing it. You've got this life, right, and you've got this lot, and you have all these things entrusted to you. But envy is when you constantly are looking side to side, right? It's like you have a swivel head looking side to side, looking at what he has and what she has, right? I should be having that job, or I should be working in that profession, or I should be going on a vacation, or I should be married to that person, or I should be doing this, and on and on the list goes. And Asaph, his glance is always constantly sideways. He's looking around to all, to everyone. And mind you, these are wicked, arrogant people, right? Godless folks, and they have the most comfortable, cushy life you can imagine. And it drives him insane, right? In fact, verses 4 through 12 begins to describe how he perceives the existence of the wicked around him. If you just look verses 4 through 12, look at what he says. For they have no pangs till death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble like others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So he's saying, you look around and nothing ever goes wrong for them, right? They have enough food. They have enough everything. They have enough. And everything they have is in abundance, and the troubles that seem to affect all of us never seem to touch them, right? Verse 6, pride, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. The eyes swell out through fatness. The heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tr- tongues strut about through the earth. He's saying everything goes right in their life. And when it does, do you think they get humbled and say, what a great God that has blessed me? No. He says, because everything is going well, they wear pride like a necklace. They talk about how they succeeded here and how well they have done this there. And, this, and then he begins to sort of dissect them, right? Sort of break them part by part to show how comprehensibly wicked they are. Right? He talks about their heart and their eyes and their tongues. And everything about them is bent away from God and bent towards wickedness. See, I don't know about you, but if you're honest, you can also resonate with Asaph, right? See, Asaph doesn't know what to do. And verse 10, it says, Therefore, his people turn back and find no fault in them. They say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. 
He's saying, look at all the people around drawn to them, right? Drawn to their power, drawn to their wealth. And so they come up with this conclusion. Is there a God watching at all? Is there anyone above watching? And if there is someone in heaven watching, maybe he doesn't care. Because as I'm watching the stats, there's a bunch of people who don't care about God, and they're doing fine. And there are a bunch of people who do care about God, and their life stinks. So what's God doing in heaven? Does he know? Does he care? And Asaph, he's processing all this, and he comes to this conclusion. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Can you feel that? Can you just hear how he's talking? See, he doesn't know how to make sense of this. And here's the thing. Asaph Asaph isn't necessarily mad at the wicked. He's not out to scold them or to punish them, not even to get rid of them. What he wants more than anything is to join them, right? Because if they have the life that he so badly wants... If you look at verse 13, he concludes it like this. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. See, he sees all this and processes all this. And what he concludes is, it's all vanity. You have to hear what he's saying. He's saying, look, they do nothing right and everything goes uh, right for them. I do nothing wrong. And everything goes wrong for me. He's basically saying, what's the point? Right? What is the point? I've worked so hard to try and walk the straight and narrow, trying to keep my heart clean. I've busted my butt for what? What's the point? It's all useless. It's all in vain. Why have I tried to keep my heart pure and my hands, my heart clean and my hands pure? And if you're honest... You can sense that, right? And that's where Asaph is. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Here's what he's saying. Remember, Asaph is a worship leader of God's people, right? And so he's saying... In that season when I was struggling with all of this, if I had spoken this out loud, right? if I had turned these questions in my heart to declarations or statements, I would have messed a bunch of people up. Right? It would be like if Charles, he came up here, and it's one thing if Charles got questions in his heart. It's another thing if he goes, the next song is, life stinks and God doesn't care. Right? You would go, Something's off. (laughs) And that's because if you've ever been secretly disappointed with God, that's where Asaph is. If you in the quiet recesses of your heart have been frustrated with him, disappointed with him, you're thinking about walking away, then Asaph is your man. You see, verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's trying to make sense of all of this, all this stuff that's brewing and boiling in his heart, and he can't seem to make sense of any of it. I'm trying to understand it, but it seems to me a wearisome task. 
and his heart is all knotted up, he's got questions, and there's darkness in there, and he's trying to make sense of it. He's trying to untangle it, but he just can't. He's worn out. Have you guys ever felt like that? I've got no answer, no way to fix this. I'm trying to think this through, right? I'm trying to come up with a good spiritual answer, but I'm worn out. Until, right? And that's the first word of verse 17. Until. And that's probably the most important word in the entire chapter because that's the word on which the whole thing turns. Until, right? Until I was thinking about this and I was weary, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Whose end? The wicked. Right? Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when, no one, when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here's what he's saying. Truly God is good to Israel, right? To those who are pure in heart, but for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps nearly slipped as I saw the prosperity of the wicked, right? Their life is perfect, and everything about them is going great, but for me, it's all in vanity that I've kept myself clean and my heart pure. So I'm trying to think this through, and nothing's going right. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, I discerned their end. You see, he goes into God's house. He goes into God's presence. And there, standing with God's people, beloved, basically he comes to church, right? And he's standing in church with God's people. He's singing the songs. He's praying with them. He's listening to the word. And at that moment, he encounters God, right? He's never had a problem with theology. Get this, right? He didn't have to change his doctrine. He didn't have to believe something new. It's just that for a long time, he hadn't felt this God, right? And they're standing among God's people, singing the songs with God's people, praying with them, listening to the word being spoken. His heart suddenly begins to feel God until I beheld God until he experienced God, until he encountered the living God, until his emotions actually felt this God. And there he was standing with God's people in God's presence. And it's almost as if he snapped back to reality, right? You see, he's been so envious that he's been seeing the world through envy glasses, right? And you can, you can look at it. You can see in verses 4 through 12, he's exaggerating a bit, right? How the rich people are. See, no one has a life that good, right? Not even the rich. But he's seeing the world through envy glasses. And that's what a lot of this psalm is about, how Asaph is seeing. Right? Verses 1 through 12, he's looking sideways, and all he can see is the wicked and their stuff. Verses 13 and 14, he starts looking in and going, poor me, woe is me. And it's this pity party extraordinaire. Verse 17, he sees God. And in seeing God, suddenly his his vision of everything becomes reoriented. And when his vision of everything becomes reoriented, as he experiences God in his heart, he discerns the end of the wicked. That he's been envying all along. Right? You know what their end is? 
they're standing on a slippery slope. And notice the contrast between this verse and verse 2, right? Where he says, I almost slipped, right? I almost fell. But you know what the end of the wicked is? They are definitely going to fall, right? They are definitely going to slip. They are definitely standing on a slippery slope. He's almost comparing his shaky ground to their certainly sloped ground. And what he's saying is, what I was longing for them, I see where it's all going. They are trusting in their riches. Their riches are going to fade. They're trusting in their beauty. Their beauty is going to fade. They're trusting in their glory. Their glory is going to fade. See, in the blip of eternity, they are just a blip. Right? In the span of eternity, they're a moment. They're like a vapor. They're like a phantom. Right? They're here a moment, gone the next. I see straight now. It's like, would you envy a ticket on the luxury Titanic? Right? If it's 1912 and all these rich, rich people are parading onto the Titanic, sure, that ride is going to be sweet for a little while. Right? The music is going to sound great for a little while. The food is going to taste amazing for a little while. But are you going to envy a ticket on that? No, why? You discern their end. Right? You know their end. And Asaph is saying, standing in the sanctuary of God, beholding God, I discerned their end. He starts to see them right, and he starts to see something else right. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you hear what's happening? The whole time his eyes are in a bunch of different places, right? Verses 1 through 12, they're looking at the wicked. 13 and 14, right at himself. 17 onwards, he starts looking at God. And this whole time, he's obsessed with what they have and he doesn't. And now, finally, he sees what he has that they don't, right? He has God. And all this time, he's been lusting after what they have and what he doesn't. And he's forgotten of what, they, what he has and they don't. I have God. And if you notice in the chapter, the pronouns begin to change. For a while, it's they are this way, they are this way, they are this way. Then it's I am this way, I am this way, I am this way. Then it's, if you look at verse 23 and following, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me and counsel, guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. You see, he finally begins to see, look at what I have. And this man is saying, I've been acting like an animal, right? I was brutish and ignorant like a stubborn ox. I was like a donkey. And that whole time, you kept me. Did you hear that? 
I was acting like an animal, and you kept holding on to my right hand. I was brutish and ignorant. I was letting envy, envy create all these doubts. I was acting like a donkey, and you kept treating me like a son. You kept holding on to my right hand. Notice it's not Asaph saying, I kept with you, right? I fought through the doubts and I stayed with you, God. No, it's you kept holding on to my right hand. While I was wandering and pulling away from you like a stubborn ox, you wouldn't let go of my right hand. You know, it's, it's like a father that holds his son's hand, right? My son Isaiah is too. He may want to run into the street, but I'm holding on to his right hand. That son may want to run, but the father is holding on to his right hand. And Asaph experiences this. In God's presence, with God's people, he experienced this grace and mercy, beloved, that he didn't deserve, and neither do you and I. The, the mercy and grace isn't something that he now knew up here. He had now felt it in his heart. And see, some of us, some of you right now, some of you may be wandering, right? Some of you may have doubts that you held up so high, right? And one thing is we'll never question our doubts, right? We'll question our faith. We won't question our doubts. We don't try to get underneath what's there. And we're acting like a beast. Or maybe you're like Asaph and you're playing the game. And God is saying, feel my right hand. Because it's right there holding on to yours. Because if you could actually feel that grace, right, and that mercy, you would say like this man does in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth that I desire besides you. New Hope, what we need to do is ask God to do for what he did for Asaph for our hearts. See, God is saying, I am ready to satisfy because we're never going to get enough of the other stuff, right? You, it's like, are you ever going to have enough food, enough fine food that you go, I'm full, right? Are you ever going to have enough pleasure where you go, I'm content? Are you ever going to have enough stuff where you go, I'm good? No. It's like drinking salt water trying to rid your thirst, and God is saying, I am the living water. And he who drinks of me thirsts no more. And Jesus was sent to the cross so that you might have God. And you know, the beauty of the gospel that we believe is that in order for God to make sure that he would never let go of your hand, he let go of his son's hand. Because on the cross in that moment, Jesus is crying out like the psalmist, where are you? Right? My Lord and my God, why have you forsaken me? Now there's a loaded question. And you know in that moment what the father did? He let him go. And he let Jesus go into this oblivion of lostness so that he might purchase you. And God would say, I'm never letting go of your right hand. He forsook his son so that he can hold on to yours. His son acted perfect. 
you and I acted like a mule. And he let go of his son's hand to hold on to ours. And when you feel that grace, and you come back like Asaph did, and you conclude like Asaph does in verses 27 to 28, let's just read it, and then we'll close. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. New Hope, he ends by saying, you know what true misery is? It's being far from God. And you know what true prosperity is? It's being near God. And in contrast to verse 2, where he said, but for me, I almost stumbled, he ends in verse 28 and says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made him my refuge. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight, Christian and non-Christian alike. God, we ask that you'd meet us in our doubts, that we would have the courage to face our questions, and that we pray that, God, today, that we would experience you. When Asaph experienced God, he was back. Until he experienced God, he was back. Till then, he was far away. And, Father, we pray that by your spirit you would draw us back to you, that you would reorient our eyes on Christ to see how your son acted perfectly. And though we acted like a mule, nevertheless, you love us. It is your hand that continually holds on to ours. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to show us tonight and throughout this week how much you love us and how much you care for our deepest needs. In this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.